Hey, listeners. If you're enjoying Faith Reconstructed, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share it with someone who might like it. Okay? On with the show. The English language is a complex and volatile means of communication. Here's an example. When you read the title for this episode, you filled in the blank. We bring our own interpretations, which will set the tone for how we will take in information. Seeing an episode on reconstructing gender roles can leave some people wary. This has been made a volatile topic within Christianity and outside of it, allowing many of us to branch off into our own understanding of what the discussion could entail. Therefore, I will clarify. In this episode, we will deconstruct some of the verses specifying that men and women must abide by certain roles, confronting damaging assumptions that have affected women's personal relationship with God and the repercussions it has on men. I'm Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. It's interesting how when we say gender roles, very often we mean roles for women. However, for my male listeners, I encourage you to stay for the discussion, since this conversation is directed to you too. In this episode, we will be abiding by male and female gender identifications, and will not be addressing women in roles of institutional church leadership. This episode is for 12-year-old me, who looked at the rows and rows of books for Christian girls in my local Christian bookstore, and was crushed under the variety of books that told me to be modest, not to date, kiss or talk to boys, wait for my quote-unquote prince while being God's princess, yet found none that gave practical guidance on how to develop a relationship with God. If we're filling in gaps, the excessive, almost perverse amounts of books that only address girls as future wives and mothers, then that would suggest that this is all God has to say about women. This discussion is to confront that misinterpretation head-on. Maybe this episode is for 12-year-old you, too. Either way, there are many of us, men and women, who were influenced by gender roles that aren't always biblically accurate. I grew up in a kind of a traditional, somewhat conventional Protestant home, I would say, but on the liberal side of Protestant. So there wasn't much discussion about the meaning of scripture on like what we call household codes. You know, there was never a women should submit conversation that I could recall growing up. In fact, there were no conversations really that had to do with the Bible much. This is Dr. Jennifer Jill Schwarzer. She is the founder of Abide Counseling, an accomplished musician and public speaker, and has a doctorate concentration on traumatology. And then I came into young adulthood, late teens, and was in college. And I was suddenly immersed in a very strident, progressive, far left environment because of my personality. I'm kind of an experimental creative person. And I ended up at this college that I chose that was very experimental and very wildly progressive. But one of the things that was going on on the campus was a lot of second wave feminism. What I mean by second wave feminism is like Gloria Steinem and kind of those early figures in feminism. And the core of second wave feminism is women can 
should get paid equally to men. They're as capable as men are. There was this major refutation of the belief that women were somehow inferior to men. And it was thought that we needed to sort of put aside our sexuality as a power tool because that would be basically admitting that we were inferior and had to resort to that. Now, third wave feminism said, no, use your sexuality as a power tool. And that's a whole different story. So I was in the middle of second wave feminism, but it was quite a strident form of it on this college campus, a bunch of young people, you know, they can be kind of over the top about things. And it was this revolution atmosphere on the campus. And there were quite a few really intense feminists, most of them open lesbians. So it was quite an environment. It wasn't a conventional school at all. There I was in the middle of this college campus, surrounded with this very strident form of feminism and, you know, took on a lot of the belief system because I didn't really know anything different. And then some ways into that year, I was very lonely and struggling with depression and, and other things. And some people witnessed to me about Jesus. And I ended up having this 180 conversion experience where I went, it was like Damascus Road kind of thing where I'm like totally worldly and not into Christianity at all, maybe into God, but nebulous new agey perception of God. And, and then all of a sudden I'm like an on fire Christian Jennifer states that in the midst of her newfound Christianity, she bumped into Seventh-day Adventism and was drawn to Adventism's strong dependence on scripture. In addition, one of the main founders was a woman by the name of Ellen G. White. Someone we believe had the gift of prophecy even. She was a wonderful and prolific writer and wrote on multiple Bible topics. She's smack dab in the middle of Adventist culture, Adventist history, very powerful woman, and it, I think, created an impediment for me going further into more of a radical form of Christianity on the role of women, because I was very, very, very earnest in my commitment to scripture and what sometimes happens to earnest souls and they end, is they end up radicalized. So I think, actually, the presence of Ellen White, uh, as I began to study the Bible and then studied with Seventh Adventists, the presence of Ellen White was a moderating influence in my life. When we enter a new belief, having, as Dr. Jill describes, a complete 180 experience, we have a tendency to overcorrect in a fervor of newfound dedication. She explains that what ultimately happened was that she was exposed to a lot of biblical data on the role of womanhood and how to grapple with it. Our observation on gender is heavily influenced by culture. Later forms of Christianity adopted regressive forms of gender roles seen in the larger culture— such as the belief that women are worth less than men, with certain scriptures being taken out of context and used as a convenient shield to defend ideologies that are actually opposed to fundamental truths of God's word. This tactic is used on dozens of damaging ideologies, from Christian nationalism to eugenics. Soon, the association with some of the beliefs bleed into one another, when the misconception has become some people's foundational understanding— our responsibility is deconstructing these ideologies and asking ourselves if it's congruent with the larger narrative found in the gospel. There's a very strong movement to oppose what we might call toxic patriarchy that has existed in evangelicalism and then to some degree in Adventism. Pretty much all Christianity has had at least pockets of it. And some religious groups have been pretty much characterized by this toxic patriarchy or what I would call toxic patriarchy. And there's this pushback against that. But often what the pushback does is it takes authors that have written on some of these biblical passages 
and attacks the authors. And what I would rather do is look at the text itself. Maybe that author did a great job of unpacking that text, but let's dig in and do a better job ourselves, is my thinking. As we're digging in, let's start at the beginning with Genesis 3.16. To give context, humanity has fallen thanks to the serpent tricking Eve and Adam eating the fruit. The order of responsibility for humanity's fall is the serpent warping God's character, causing Eve to doubt, and from that doubt, Eve becomes the second domino to fall, partaking in the fruit. And she asks Adam to eat the fruit, sealing sin's entrance into the world. At this point, God has found them in the aftermath and is sharing the repercussions of their actions. In verse 16, it states, To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, different interpreters see these in different ways. Some people say the first half is about pain and childbearing, and the second half is the sin impacted her relationship with her husband. Another way of looking at this, the way I look at it, is three things happened. She's going to now suffer in the process of childbearing, and it's said twice, so there's a lot of emphasis on that. And then also, she's going to desire her husband. That word desire is an interesting word. It's used in Genesis chapter 4 in reference to sin desiring to have Cain. He wants to, sin wants to rule. Also in Song of Solomon, where the bridegroom's desire is for the bride, and some interpret that as the reversal of the curse of Eden. And I think that's rather beautiful and has some potential. So there's a desire, though. There's some kind of longing toward the husband, whether it be sexual desire. I tend to see it as desire for approval, uh, desire to please kind of thing. And I see that, frankly, a lot in marriage counseling where women really want to please their husbands, sometimes to their own ruin. And, um, and then he will rule over you. So there's some kind of relationship between the desire and the ruling over. Um, he's going to definitely have a power advantage. Now, note that this is a result of sin. It didn't exist before sin. There wasn't pain and suffering in childbirth before sin. This is something that came as the result of sin. Pay close attention to what was just shared. This inequality, this pain, some may say deep female rage was the result of sin's entrance. Remember the first episodes with David and Ty when we clarified that sin's entrance wasn't God punishing humanity, but listing out the repercussions that would occur because of the choice? If you remember, I gave the example of a parent warning their child not to touch the stove and the child burning themselves when they didn't listen wasn't the parent causing the burn, but warning them of a consequence when engaging with something that will hurt. Sin is the same. God did not design Eve to feel debilitating cramps, have hormonal imbalance, or have the body break apart in excruciating pain during childbirth. Nor did her heavenly father exclude her from having a relationship with him, intending for Adam to rule over her. Being said by certain ones that uh, ascribe to something called headship theology. And I quickly add that I'm not against all headship. But what is often called headship theology has some tenets that I think are not biblical. One of the tenets is that the subjugation of women existed before the fall. God set creation up such that she was subjugated to him. I think that flies in the face of 
biblical truth because right here we have that it happened as a result of the fall. So I think it's important that we set up ahead of time that there was egalitarianism before the fall. There was an equal, there was a horizontality in their relationship. They were different, but there was no power differential or power imbalance in the relationship. There was a full partnership. And it is possible, and you know this probably from some of your relationships, that if you're really in sync with someone, you can just have a partnership relationship. Not every relationship requires us to be like, well, who's in charge here? If you get along well enough with people, you can just be like, we're both in charge or neither of us are in charge and you're fine with that. So that's how it was before the fall. Those who prescribe to headship theology usually rely on a collection of verses that prove God only wants women to exist in a certain type of role in womanhood. No doubt these will sound familiar. There's Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Colossians 5.22-24, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should also submit to their husbands in everything. 1 Peter 3, 1-2 Likewise, wives should be subject to their own husbands. So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see you respectful and pure conduct. And finally, Titus 2, 5 To be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. All of these scriptures are New International Version. So that's the group of texts that talk about submission of wives to husbands. And then there's a group of texts that talk about different approaches that a husband has to a wife versus a wife to a husband. And I call them the love and respect passages. A book was written about this that has received a lot of flack, But I thought, let's just go to the passages themselves and see what they say. This is what is conveniently left out. Within the verses listed, there are counter-instructions given to the husbands, and in most cases require double the amount of effort and attentiveness. After the three verses in Ephesians, it is followed by Ephesians 25 through 33. There are eight verses detailing how the husband must give himself up for her, supporting her spiritually and physically, being her safety and peace, loving her with such intention everyone knows that he has done right by his wife. After Colossians 3.18 is 3.19, saying, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In Titus 2, verses 2, 6, 7, and 8, there is instruction for men to be self-controlled, being temperate and worthy of respect, sound in faith, love and endurance. They're called to show integrity and be healthy examples. So it's very interesting to me that there's such a strong stress on when you're talking about love versus respect, there's a stronger stress on love than there is on women respecting their husbands. Rolling forward to the headship passages, these are the ones that I struggle the most with, frankly, and I'm not going to claim that I make perfect sense out of them. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3 and then 1 Corinthians 14.34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. Then there's the favorite verse of every headship theologian, which is 1 Timothy 2.12. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over man. She must be kept silent. So... (laughs) 
this is a lot. So a few points, a, a few points just to kind of get like undizzy, you know. The, the word generally used for submission is hupotasso in the Greek, which basically means to place under. Um, not once in any of these passages are husbands told to make their wives submit. That's an important point. This is a vertical axis command. It's between the woman and God. And it's also a qualified command in that Colossians verse that I read, as is fit in the Lord. Let's face it, there are some men, and we will read a statement to this effect in a moment here, that because of their behavior, they do not really deserve the word husband. The husband is a house band. A man who is cruel to his wife, abusive to his wife, harsh, cruel, you know, is not a husband in the true sense of the term. And so that's why that qualifier. This is talking, these passages are talking about women submitting to a loving husband. That's pretty clear. And so it's a qualified submission. It's not, we hear often from certain sectors, you submit unless what he specifically asks you to do is wrong. I reject that because I do think women shouldn't submit to their husbands requiring them to sin, but I think it's incorrect to say that's the only case in which you don't submit because if he tells you what to eat, what to wear, what to say, every single thing might be a morally acceptable behavior, but he's controlling your mind. And I don't think any human being can in heart submit that you may have to just kind of play along with something for your own safety for a period of time. But in terms of true heart submission, you should never surrender yourself to the control of another. That is wrong in the eyes of God. And so women that are in a situation and men that are in a situation where they're being micromanaged and manipulated by their spouse, I think need to make some kind of, um, they need to do something to get out of that situation. And I can give suggestions on that later as to how to do that. But, but you know, the control of the mind is a very, very grievous thing in the eyes of God. We use the word submission a lot, so let's define it. Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary professor Dr. David Sedlicek says, quote, submission is about an attitude in the heart, wanting the best for the other, willing to sacrifice and reason with the other, end quote. Submission is an act of free will. It can't be forced. At its core, submission is earned through relational safety. This means it is the men who must prove themselves as loving partners. This means caring for their wives, not only spiritually, but sharing in the emotional labor, being present, carrying the mental load of everyday life with the understanding that the wife will also do the same. God intended equal partnership, and equal partnership requires free choice. Over and over this season, we have encountered the radical presence of God wanting us to choose and choose wisely. Isn't it wildly counterintuitive to think that everything God has shared in the scriptures, the lengths he went to to allow us to develop full identities and him alone, would be thrown out the window because of one specific gender? In scripture, it calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church without being condescending, without force, without emotional manipulation, but with an open, unconditional love. The larger biblical teaching on the character of God, and in particular on God's freedom-granting character, 
So why, I think what you're saying, so on point, you're so right, is that why would God grant freedom to the human race and take this huge risk in the great controversy and the whole plan of redemption and all the real suffering and pain that comes out of that because God allowed free will to his creatures? And then why would he suddenly set up marriage such that the woman has no free will? That is contradictory to the larger teaching of scripture on the character of God. The episodes of the season were chosen because they touch on foundational information. I also wanted to address issues that caused many of my friends and family to run from or resent Christianity. My choice to include a discussion on roles of women and men is because there are women who have stopped themselves from pursuing God because of deeply damaging ideologies that have been associated with Christianity. The worst aggressor has been purity culture. This has become a gendered campaign to police a woman's quote-unquote purity through clothing and behavior alone. Speaking personally, every book I read in the early 2000s was a weaponization of shame and purity as superiority. It told me how to dress, how to act, how to interact with boys, how not to engage with young people who were a bad influence. They might have been well-meaning and even will have held good advice, but in the end, these books stated my only value— as a single young woman going through puberty and the rot process of shaping my identity, was my virginity. I had the benefit of an amazing family that recognized the imbalance of these teachings. However, it wasn't until adulthood that I began to practice how to develop my faith. And the sad part is, it was never meant to be this way. I mean, the challenge is embracing purity, what was right about purity culture, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but you know, there were some objectionable aspects of it that led people, really burned people. And that um, was the result of, again, taking part of scripture, but dismantling it from the larger teaching of scripture on the character and love of God. So another point that I think is really important when we look at these texts is that this is talking about submission to a husband on the part of a wife, not all women submitting to all men. And where some interpretations of those passages leads people is that women are innately inferior. God set this up this way. Women are supposed to be subjugated to men from before the fall. And that means that all women are in some sense inferior to all men. And we need to keep the structure of the church and even some people believe secular society that way and would even oppose a woman president or something like that. So that's taking these passages too far because all of the data is talking about submission within a marriage. So it begs the question, what kind of marriage? At this point, you might think that this discussion is no better than the other conversations surrounding women, which only discuss them in context of their marital status. I can understand that. However, what Dr. Jill and I are doing are addressing the texts that have been taken out of context the most and are used to support problematic theologies. In putting these verses in context, we're observing that women weren't supposed to submit to all men because they are men, but choose to submit to one man who has proven himself to be a loving partner within a covenantal relationship. It would be remiss to not address Ephesians 5.21, which precedes Ephesians 5.22's verse on wives submitting to their husbands. Ephesians 5.21 states that we must be submissive, or in some versions, subject, to one another. 
Some versions include this under the section discussing Christian households and the relational unit. Others have no sections at all. Yet the verses above speak to living a life that is honoring to God, including pursuing a life of fellowship and celebratory faith. This can refer to a general form of submission, such as deferring to another person out of respect. Marriage is a sacred covenant. Therefore, the dynamics of that relationship will be more intimate than with another brother or such during Christ. Do you remember the author and theologian Ellen G. White we mentioned earlier? She wrote a collection of reflections, which became the book Adventist Home, and she is vocal in pushing against toxic patriarchal models that she has seen in the church. So she says this, the Lord Jesus has not been correctly represented in his relation to the church by many husbands in their relation to their wives, for they do not keep the way of the Lord. This is like really authoritative language. They declare that their wives must be subject to them in everything, but it is not the design of God that the husband should have control as head of the house when he does not submit to Christ. He must be under the rule of Christ that he may represent the relation of Christ to the church. If he is coarse, rough, boisterous, egotistical, harsh, and overbearing man, let him never utter the word that the husband is the head of the wife and that she must submit to him in everything, for he is not the Lord and he is not the husband in the true significance of the term. I mean, can you blow toxic patriarchy any further out of the water than she just did? You can't. <laughs> so that is so great. So, all right. So back to the point, it's not all women submit to all men. And even within the context of a marriage, she is not inferior to him, but there is an arrangement now post-fall that's put in place by God. And all that God does is from a place of love and redemption and wanting to save humanity. So, so then to me, the, the question that's on the table is, um, why? Why did he do that? So I'm putt-putting along in my Christian experience. So I'm studying the Bible, I'm writing and doing what I do. And I run into a book called Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun. There are two New York Times columnists at the time they write the book. What they did was not from a place of biblical understanding at all. I don't think either of them are Christians or if they are, they're not saying in the book that they're coming from a biblical place, but just because they could see that globally women were suffering and that globally women were suffering disproportionately in some ways than men were suffering. Now quickly, I wanna qualify that. Most of the deaths in war are men dying, not women, but men. But if you take war off the table, most of the other stuff that goes on, it's men hurting women, I'm sad to say. So in the very beginning of the book, what they, what they do in the book is they just chronicle the sort of lot of womankind globally and in the developing world in particular, we kind of are out of touch with what's happening globally for most women in the world. And so it was really helpful to get that exposure in this book and they, they're journalists. So they go to the place and actually work with the people. And it was really quite inspiring. Within the book, originally published in 2009, the two journalists found women in the developing world who were underrepresented, neglected financially, medically, emotionally, and politically, and offered microloans. The microloans allowed women to build businesses that allowed financial freedom. 
One woman in the Middle East was the victim of domestic violence by her alcoholic husband and was given a microloan. She began an embroidery business that quickly flourished, outgrowing their initial building and hiring employees, one of which ended up being her husband. So what they say in the beginning of the book was that they were New York Times columnists and they were into particularly reporting about human rights outrages. She says, after we married, we moved to China, where seven months later, we found ourselves standing on the edge of Tiananmen Square, watching troops fire their automatic weapons at the pro-democracy protesters. You've seen the pictures, though, of these people getting mowed down right there in Tiananmen Square, and it was just shocking. So she says, the massacre claims between 400 and 800 lives and transfixed the world. It was the human rights story of the year, and it seemed just about the most shocking violation imaginable. And she goes on and says, the result is that as many infant girls die unnecessarily every week in China as protesters died in the one incident at Tiananmen, those Chinese girls never received a column inch of news coverage. And we began to wonder if our journalistic priorities were skewed. As a result, Christoph and Wudan recalibrated their attentions to the hidden neglect, atrocities, and dismissal of tens of thousands, simply because of their gender. So what I saw from reading this book was that they basically journaled and chronicled the unfolding of Genesis 3.16, pain and toil in childbearing. You know, it's a, I think childbearing is a broad term. It doesn't just include actually pushing out the baby. It's everything that has to do with women's reproductive system. It's everything that has to do with the fact that we're mothers and we end up caring for the weak and needy members of the family system. So there are things like body image hits on pubescent females. If you look at women throughout the developmental process, they're generally confident till like 10 years old. And then they start getting estrogen in their body and their confidence crashes. Genesis 3.16 says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. The pains of childbearing goes beyond giving birth and menstruation, but has repercussions in modern-day medicine regarding women's health. Pain in childbearing is also connected to women's reproductive organs and the lack of attention they are given when issues arise. I invite you to join me in a short detour to observe an example of the scripture in this current social issue, and remember to keep the scripture in mind. If you do an internet search on studies and websites surrounding erectile dysfunction, you will get about 16,800,000 search results, whereas endometriosis studies only bring up 223,000. As of 2020, government funding for endometriosis research would be doubled to 26 million. However, that's a drop in the bucket when compared to $84 million that the U.S. Department of Defense spent on Viagra prescriptions. 10% of women experience debilitating pain, with endometrial lesions growing on the ovaries, abdominal wall, fallopian tubes, uterus, bowels, and bladder, yet may not even notice because it's no different than the average period symptoms. One in 10 women have endometriosis, Yet according to a study by Lisa Mikesill and Allison C. Bontempo in 2020, a national survey found that 75.2% of women were misdiagnosed, usually told by medical professionals that their symptoms were only psychological or were minor physical issues. 
as of the 21st century, many medical professionals have found more creative ways to diagnose women with hysteria. This is Genesis 3.16 in action, and it is an injustice that was never meant to exist. Beyond that, women are the primary caregivers of children. Even though more and more of them are entering the workforce, women still do the majority of the housework because they're nesters by nature and men aren't as much. Um, and so some people are gonna give me flack for that, but it's kind of the stats indicate that the guys aren't really picking up you know, their share of the responsibilities at home because they may, basically often don't care as much about making the home a beautiful place. And so she'll be doing that plus working it's a generality, not a stereotype. So that means that there will be exceptions, but overall women really care about the home environment and will do a lot to make it run properly. And if they're working too, that can be very, very difficult. Um, so women are, uh, they care for children. That's a whole separate aspect of the pain and toil and childbearing. They're the ones, the primary caregivers of children, the primary caregivers of aging parents, the primary ones that take care of, you know, any kind of disability, the woman is going to be the one that's going to, for the most part, in most cases, handle that, or generally speaking. And that's, you know, life for womankind. And there's a lot of pain and suffering bound up in that. This is the reality that God was trying to keep at bay. Yahweh created the world to exist without pain or suffering, without inequity or dismissal of basic needs. Men and women were created to help each other in a balanced division of physical and emotional labor. However, in the breakdown on this, the pain and toil and childbearing is one of the categories given in the repercussions from Genesis 3.16. So then I looked into um, desire toward the husband. So we're going for those three categories, pain and toil and childbearing, desire for the husband, and then he will rule over you. So very interesting, the desire for the husband. It's called male preference phenomena. And it has been established scientifically. Uh, one study was done. They gave a, an essay to a group of men and women. And they put a man's name on it, a woman's name on it, or initials on it. So it's the same essay, signed by a man, signed by a woman, signed by who knows. And what they found was both the men and the women rated the essay higher, written better, if it was signed by a man. There's also some very interesting research on three perceptions, uh, the, the differences of men and women in regard to three perceptions, likability, perceived influence, and perceived competence. And they have measured who of men and women, and then they go old and young as well, is more likable, who is more perceived competent and who is more perceived as having influence. And what happens over the life trajectory is women, young women are the most likable overall, but then men grow as they age in perceived competence and perceived influence and women don't grow as much. So you age out of your likability, but you don't age into perceived influence and perceived competence. This double standard has begun to be noticed more and more as the years go by. Think of society's dual opinions on aging. Women are not allowed to age, desperate to preserve the only period of life where they were deemed relevant. The study shows likability is the only trump card a woman can claim. Women can be brilliant, capable, and contain great integrity. However, if they are not likable, their influence suffers. 
Whereas we know many men who are seen as competent and likable simply because they got older. Men are allowed to become a silver fox with aging adding dimension and rugged attraction with no decreased value. In a society where they are the ones giving approval, their own value is not always questioned. The result of sin and the desire for men's approval is the introduction of yet another imbalance. Now, rather than women's value being found in God as a complete individual, we can seek validation from a romantic partner. Let's clarify, women deserve to have a loving and strong partner whose opinion she respects because she is confident that he has her best interest in mind. However, if women only seek men's approval because they're men, that's an issue. So that's, I think, part of the desire. There's this desire for male approval for having, you know, there's the fall of mankind presented a lot of damaging effects and the vulnerable parts of the family system, the most vulnerable unit in the family system is a mother with child. And so there needed to be some strength and some protectiveness. And so we have a tendency to look to men to protect and be strong for us in the context of a fallen world, not as much in the Western world as in the developing world, but in both really. Um, so I think that's all bound up in the desire toward the husband. And then the he will rule over you thing. I mean, it's easy to see that men just have the upper hand in terms of power in the world. One in three women in the world are beaten, raped, or coerced into sex. Women are the ones that are at a disadvantage educationally, politically, and financially. And women are the primary victims of the sex trade, domestic violence, rape, sexual abuse, and poverty. I cannot emphasize enough how much this was not God's original intention for humanity. When seen in the context of the lengths God went through for our freedom from sin, we are given perspective on how desperately he wants to save us from sin. When God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will die. What he means is the introduction of sin is the introduction of death. After humanity's fall, we were introduced to inequity. We were introduced to abuse. We were introduced to toxic patriarchy and matriarchy. However, even with sin's entrance, God worked to tailor the sentence of our consequences in a way that could still be used for our growth and his glory. I come down on the side of when I'm asking if Genesis 3.16 was prescriptive or descriptive. I was reading The Flame of Yahweh by Richard Davidson. and He, he says the thing, he's incredible. And he says that the view that it's purely descriptive is unsatisfactory despite its popularity, because it fails to take seriously the judgment slash punishment context of the passage. And if you think about it, there is this like interrogation, there's an order to the, you know, serpent first, then the woman, then there's just a whole kind of legal proceeding feel to it. And then the nature of this judgment punishment is indicated by the text and it comes in a legal trial setting. But here's how I nuance this. I think it's both. I do think that when he says it, it's a sentence but it's a merciful sentence because God's curses become blessings because God only gives us only assigns consequences that are going to help us ultimately navigate through a now broken world in the context of this instruction in 316 Genesis 316 so basically the world has now become unsafe God puts her in subjection to him but he puts her in subjection to a servant leader 
not just any man, but a servant leader, because over and over the Bible says husbands love your wives, and that indicates servant leadership. So what happens, and this is my punchline here, what happens when you're placed under, like that word, hippotasso, a servant leader? Well, is a servant leader going to be like, oh, great, you're under me, and I want you to stay there? Or are they going to be like, wait a minute, we're partners, and they're going to push you back up to your highest potential, and there's going to be a reinstatement through that process of the partnership that characterized the pre-fall marriage relationship. I acknowledge this is God, the, the equality, the horizontality of a marriage is God's original plan and really good functional marriages. And I'm speaking from the standpoint of a person who has formally counseled over 200 marriages in my counseling career. So I get marriage. Like I'm not only married for many years myself, but I've been exposed to a lot of what goes on in marriages on a deep level. And the couples that really thrive are the partnerships. The people that are like, you know, what do you think about this? Well, let's work together. They're constantly partnering. So that my belief is that subjugation thing is only a temporary measure that was better ultimately rotated out of by the couple and placed back on a platform of horizontality and what you might call hierarchical equality in a marriage. And that's where I stand. In addressing these texts centered on marriage, we recognize something about the nature of gender roles within the containment of the specific dynamic of marriage. Unfortunately, as we lost sight of Christ and began to absorb the culture, women began to only be seen within this singular dynamic, because that was the dynamic in which a man could potentially have authority. Therefore, if women are only recognized in this biblical context, other texts of womanhood are overshadowed, and she is only acknowledged in the marital dynamic. However, even the marital dynamic Satan has warped, once again offering a counterfeit that is devoid of love and respect. I think what happened also is that the devil took the curse turned into a blessing. And I'm using the word curse, you know, kind of loosely. Curse turned into a blessing and he turned it back into a curse. So what he tries to do is he tries to get women to be subjugated to men that are not servant leaders. And, and he tries to put them under cruel taskmasters and in circumstances where they're dominated and controlled and exploited and oppressed. And he has succeeded at that globally in unquantifiable ways that I was just talking about a few minutes ago, and it's very tragic and sad, but that's not God's. That's not what God said. That wasn't what God prescribed, so to speak. That was what God described. What God wanted when he said Genesis 3.16 was subjugation within the context of a loving marriage led by a servant leader that would ultimately result in a reinstatement of partnership, full partnership in the marriage. That's where I stand. I can't look at all those submission passages and say, oh, well, forget it. They didn't like what's happening now is people are so committed to um, modern feminism that they impose it on scripture. And they basically say all those passages were translated wrong or Paul wasn't enlightened yet or different stuff that I just can't go there. I'm like trying to be a biblical Christian and I just can't, I can't cast out, you know, whole swaths of scripture. So this is how I've balanced it, is I think that there is a place for submission, 
the both and approach where it's not God's will that all this awful stuff happened, not by a long shot. And you're so right. But that maybe he did sort of say this should happen within a marriage. And then his end game was the reinstatement of equality coming as close to possible as possible to the original Edenic design. This theology might feel contradictory, but God allows us to sit in our questions. The idea of God promoting submission or subjugation in order to regain equality seems counterintuitive. And frankly, that could be its own episode. But lean into the questions and most of all, lean into what God has shared about his character. We as modern individuals can get hung up on language that has become loaded. We don't like hearing that we must submit to someone. However, think about a healthy dynamic. When in a safe, protected relationship with a partner that has proven that they have your best interest in mind at all times, it's easy to submit to that. Within that dynamic, it's resting in an equal partner. Let's also remember that our value as women does not begin when we get married. God doesn't begin to notice us after we say I do or have children. In 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul shares that there are benefits to believers staying single just as there are benefits to being married. In scripture, there are more examples of women being active figures with autonomy than we realize. There's Rahab, Ruth, Esther, Deborah, Priscilla, and more within the Old Testament. Then there are the women who were active members of Christ's ministry who he encouraged to listen, learn, and develop. Christ's ministry began with the woman at the well. He healed a woman who had bled for 12 years. He listened to and thanked the woman who poured oil on his feet. It was women who were entrusted with his body after his death. And when he returned from the dead, Christ revealed himself to Mary first, the woman who was within his ministry from the beginning. Studies have proven that Christianity was financially and physically supported by independently wealthy women such as Lydia in the Book of Acts, who acted as patrons to the early church. In Proverbs 31, we see a woman over multiple seasons of life who established herself as a brilliant businesswoman, a present friend, a dedicated believer, and a loving wife and mother. When we see ancient history from the 21st century lens, we risk missing major passages and contexts that are revolutionary for their time. We can't dismiss the impact of these movements because they didn't meet modern expectation. This is where I sometimes have to catch myself. In the growth of the women's movement, we can celebrate the advancements that are in alignment with a biblical truth and the independent freedoms it provides. However, we also have to ask ourselves if our politics are informing our faith or if our faith is informing our politics. Are we pulling verses to support our views at the risk of taking them out of context? Both sides have done this, and the more we embed ourselves into extremes, we end up turning scripture into trail mix, picking out the pieces that serve our own agenda. As we stretch our concept of God's love, we must also stretch our concept of women's roles. Let me give a summation statement on the role of women, and that is that you are equal in every respect to men. Uh, there are some things that changed in the marriage relationship, but God's end game, even in the marriage relationship, is full horizontal equality between partnership between men and women. And we need to, as believers in God, recognize the gifts of women more fully. I think we've 
you know, the majority of clergy are men. And it's been very unfortunate because women haven't felt like church is a place where they can exercise their gifts. They're not the type to run potlucks and teach children. They feel like there are other gifts that are more inclined towards teaching or adult leadership aren't being used. That needs to change in the church. And that God loves and values women just so much. And, and I think knew that when the unfortunate changes came about as a result of sin came about to the role of women in the world, that there would be some excesses that would come with that. So read Ellen White and her just very forceful pushback against that stuff. Get the book um, Adventist Home and read the chapter, The Kind of Husband Not to Be. It will re- re- really reinforce your faith in her as a fair and balanced thinker. It's very good. So may God bless each, each person who listens to this podcast. And there's more to learn, and I'm definitely not there either, but this is what I've come up with so far. Our understanding of how God views women is a core factor that has kept many from pursuing a relationship with him. In observing the scriptures, leaving space for cultural and historical context, we are able to see a picture of gender roles that is more in line with God's character as we've begun to see it. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore, Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. An Adventist Learning Community Podcast.